0: We come now to the hearing and the preaching of the Word of God. If you'd like to read along with me, I'll be in John's Gospel, in the first chapter now. This is the first chapter of the book of John. And before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know that the unfolding of your Word gives light It gives understanding to the simple. Lord, we want this. So would you unfold your word here to us, that we would see Jesus. Fill us this morning with your grace and truth by your spirit. Would you guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is John in chapter 1. I want to take up this morning, or at least read, uh, these first 18 verses here. So this is John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of God. Now, these are the opening words of John's gospel. And we know that when we read a gospel, like here in the New Testament, this is not just a biography of Jesus' life. This is not just, you know, the first paragraph uh, of a Wikipedia page that gives us, you know, some details about where he's born, where he lived, you know, who, who his parents happen to be. Um, the Gospels do give us information about Jesus, but the Gospels are trying to help us understand that information, The goal of the Gospels, then, are to see how the life and work of Jesus are good news for all who believe. So in this opening, what some call the prologue of John, John here is drawing out many themes that we'll see play out over the rest of the book in the life of Jesus. So this prologue then is rich, rich with deep theology. We could could spend weeks diving deep into this. We won't. We just have today. So for the sake of time, I want to focus our attention here on just one verse in the ones we've read. It's the verse that's that's most directly related to Christmas. Maybe you can guess which verse that might be. We'll get to it in just a moment. We know that in this final Sunday before Christmas, this text may not be the Christmas sermon you were expecting. You know, there's, there's no mention here in John of, of the angels with all their, their glorias and, and a Chelsea's Deo or how, however you pronounce the Latin. You know, there's, there's no shepherds watching over their flocks by night. There's no, there's, no, there's no inn or manger. There's not even Mary and Joseph here. We hear all of those sorts of things in, in Luke's gospel account. And if you want to hear those sorts of things, well, me too. We'll do that tonight. Come join us and we'll hear those things play out. But John here takes a different approach as he's helping us to understand this Christ who has been born to us. We know each of the four gospels give us a true account of Jesus, they each tell the same true story, but they, they dive into the story in different places. So, Mark, if we were starting reading from Mark, Mark introduces us to Jesus uh, by by showing us John the Baptist, the one who was Jesus' messenger. And there's just a little blip about him before we just jump right into Jesus' adult ministry. There's no birth narrative at all in Mark. Matthew gives, uh, or Luke gives us the bulk of the birth narrative that we're familiar with, you know, Christmas time readings and such. Uh, But even Luke rewinds even further than that, back before the birth of Jesus. To the, to the conception of John the Baptist, the one who would, who would grow up to be the voice in the desert crying, prepare the way of the Lord. Luke even goes further back than that. He dovetails nicely with with, uh, Matthew. Sorry, I'm getting my gospel writers mixed up. Matthew dovetails nicely with Luke. He gives us some of the birth narrative, but he starts with this long, according to some, boring uh, genealogy, uh, some history here, connecting Jesus to all the, the Old Testament people and promises of God. But John goes the furthest back of all the Gospels. This John, the apostle, had been with Jesus for his entire ministry. John had seen the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so now, as he's sitting here to write an account of who Jesus is and what he's done, I I imagine John sitting at his desk I don't know if there was a desk, this is all my imagination, he probably had a scribe of some sort, but at any rate, in my imagination, John is, you know, stroking his beard, tapping his chin, you know, where do you begin telling about Jesus? And John goes back before Jesus' adult ministry, back before the birth and virgin conception, back before even all the Old Testament line of the forefathers of David and Abraham, back even before the creation of the world and before all time, and there we see Jesus in the beginning. And John begins, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was born, yes, but the person of Jesus precedes the light of the star of Bethlehem. He precedes all stars and all lights. Jesus was in the beginning. At the very words, let there be light, he was there. We hear a nod even to the Trinity here that the word is both with God and is God. Now, why then does John start here? even back before the beginning. As John is taking us, the reader here, on a journey, he's about to travel us through the life of Jesus, through, through the countryside and various places, we'll see Jesus teaching and, and healing and rebuking and eating and drinking with, with people and sinners. John wants to make sure that we know this First. And even though all the New Testament writers, the gospel writers, emphasize these sorts of things, John makes this crystal clear right up front, Jesus is the source of life, he is the true light, he is the word who was with God and is God. John is showing us, wants us to get, that Jesus has come from the top down, not the bottom up. Did you get that? Let me say it again. Jesus has come from the top down, not the bottom up. In other words, there was not just a person in history, a child named Jesus, who, who, who happened to be so good and so holy and so phenomenal that he was eventually elevated, maybe promoted to a place of deity. That would be a bottom up approach. That's not what the scripture teaches. Instead, we see that the person of Jesus, who is eternal God now descends to us as a man as a boy, as a baby Jesus comes from the top down and John doesn't tell this, remember, just to, to tell us this true story about Jesus. He's trying to help us understand Jesus so that we'll know our Lord, we'll, we'll know this, this King of Nations, the one whom we worship as, as the Savior of sinners. So as we see then this Jesus from the top down, there's a lot of life-giving doctrine here in John's prologue, but I said we'd focus on one verse most connected to Christmas. Have you guessed it already? Here's the verse we want to focus on in the rest of our time. It's a verse... Fourteen. let me read the beginning of it again and the word became flesh and dwelt among us the word became flesh and dwelt among us John does not say here that flesh became God he says, the Word, who is with God and is God, became flesh. Not just like flesh, not just resembling flesh, not just sort of had an appearance that was sort of similar to flesh, became flesh. This is part of who Jesus now is. We have a fancy word for this. We call this infleshing of Jesus, his incarnation. You may have heard that word already, familiar with it, his incarnation, that Jesus became carne. That he became meat and muscle and bone and skin and fat and pores and eyelashes. We sing about this particular thing in a way that sounds much prettier than singing about meat and eyelashes. In Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the line is, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Hail the incarnate deity. This is very important for us to understand. Okay? I don't want us to downplay this as something we already know. I've grown up, I've heard about Jesus forever. No. And, and let's not just dismiss this as nitpicky doctrinal things that only pastors care about. This is central to our understanding of Jesus and our understanding of God. Okay, we might set up, you know, nativities in your living room or maybe out on your lawn. You know, we might sing all the Christmas songs that are actually about Jesus and not just about jingle bells. You know, we might hang up all, all the decorations that say Christmas and actually have the word Christ underlined in Christmas just to make the point. You could do all of that. That is not going to matter a hill of beans if you don't get this. If you don't believe this, that Christmas is about. Incarnate Deity The Christ, the word Became Flesh This matters, especially for the church. I, I don't want you to be deceived in relation to this. I want you to be wise and aware of these things. John writes to his listeners later in his second letter, uh, 2 John. He says this to his listeners. We also hear and receive it as well. Second John, verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for but may win a full reward. These deceivers, John says, these people who are in. Affecting the church are saying untrue things and it's not just that they're saying oh there's no God it's not just that they're saying even, oh there's no Jesus it's that they've twisted, perverted gotten wrong somehow who Jesus is they're, they're saying that Christ has not come in the flesh and John here says to say that Christ has not come in the flesh is the antichrist so take care So watch yourselves, guard this truth in your mind and heart. And the truth is this, that Jesus has come in the flesh. That Jesus has become flesh, even that he is truly human. Now, that may bring up a question in you, it does at least in me, or has. And that question is this, if Jesus has become flesh, what was Jesus before he became flesh? You know, before all, all, all the, the swaddling clothes and, and even the, before the womb of the Virgin Mary, before he was incarnate. We know that Jesus is God, but what is he, if we can ask it this way, what is he made of? Uh, we have catechisms for these sorts of things, and one of our catechisms, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, actually asks and answers this very question. It's the fourth question. There's a whole bunch, but it's question number four. The question is this, what is God? What is God? And I've heard some people push back against that, arguing it's better to ask who is God You know, in some sense, there's some truth to that. We know God is personal. He's not just a force or an object. Uh, So we should ask who, but you can also ask who or what. I could ask who am I or what am I? At any rate, the, the question is, what is God? And the answer given is this. God is a spirit. There's more to the answer infinite, eternal, and unchanged. There's more descriptors that come after that. But God is a spirit. He's a spirit. And this is not uh, just what the catechism question answers. This is what scripture says. You maybe remember when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, he says to her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. When Jesus says that, he is not just talking about the Holy Spirit here. He's not only talking about the third person of the Trinity. We worship one God in three persons. So when Jesus says God is spirit, he means all of God is spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. The Father is spirit. And Christ the Son is spirit. Even though he's now also human. So even in his incarnation, when Jesus became flesh, he did not become less spirit. It's forever true that whether he was in the beginning or in the arms of Mary or on his eternal throne, Jesus is spirit. Now, having said that, Jesus is spirit. I know that the idea of spirit can be, I don't know, tricky. I'll say it that way for some people. Uh, You know, spirit can feel or at least sound kind of foggy, nebulous. I mean, if you think you've got a good grasp on the concept of spirit, I've got a challenge for you. Try explaining spirit to little kids. Good luck. This is my life right now, you know. Uh, They ask, little kids ask some of the best questions about these things. They wrinkle up their nose, you know, tilt their head sideways and and ask hard questions, good questions. So we have to acknowledge that on some level there's an aspect of Christ's spirit nature that is just foreign to us. It's good for us that there's a good bit of mystery here. We we know we're sensory people. We like the senses we're drawn to the things that we can see and smell and get a grip on, literally even. Uh, some of this, as I try to grapple with this idea of spirit, reminds me, do you remember when uh, the uh, SpaceX uh, sent uh, some, blasted some astronauts out into well, wherever they went? Uh, when that happened, the the dragon shuttle, we watched it all, you know, it was very exciting, and trying to explain to the girls what's going on, and, uh, and you know, there's all these cool suits, the people are all dressed in, in these white suits that were really interesting to look at, and there was blinking lights, and at the moment when they shoot off into space, there's a big blast, and it's very loud, uh, but after that, that all led to some very interesting discussions about atmosphere, What's atmosphere and, and air? What exactly is air and outer space? And, uh, this was the trickiest one. Gravity and G-forces. You know, how do you answer a three-year-old who says, where is the gravity? What, what, can I look? Can I, where is the gravity? Well, it's here. Where? <laughs> uh, This was uh, tough for me now as a halfway intelligent adult to even wrap my mind around, much less to try to explain it. We know that our inability to see it or even our inability to explain it does not necessarily make it any less real. We know the God of the Bible is not just a force, as gravity is. He is a living spirit, but he is also evidently Real He is not just a figment of our imagination He's not just a a creation of humans To help us cope with the trials of life God is real He is a creating, sustaining Seeing, speaking God Whose works and effects we can clearly see But God, because he's spirit We cannot see him We can't see God in the scripture, at least in the Old Testament, the glimpses that we see of God are, are, are veiled at best. And only occasional. Sometimes the people would see God through fire, through smoke, through light or whirlwind. And the closest thing in the Old Testament that people got to actually seeing God in a sensory way was at his tangible presence in the tabernacle. It's sometimes called this the tent of meeting. It was the early forerunner of the temple, you know, after they came out of Egypt, the Lord had freed them from slavery, and then they set up this structure in the center of their encampments as they traveled. And we hear about this this description in a sensory way at the very end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter uh, Forty. Let me read a number of verses, but turn, tune in your ears here. Verse 33, I'll begin. He, Moses, he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work and then a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Did you catch that last little line? All this description of God in the tabernacle was in the sight of all the house of Israel. The presence of God could be, could be seen Here the the glory of God who was with them, who guided them, who received worship and sacrifice for them at the tabernacle. The people saw the very spirit of God in his glory. Now, John is threading these two things together. Helping us see how what we saw here in the tabernacle of this God in the Old Testament is now connected to Jesus in the New Testament how they're connected at the incarnation of, of at Christmas. So we hear in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. He doesn't just say we have seen Jesus. We've seen his glory. That all the glory of God we now see in Jesus, all the fullness of grace and truth of God we now see in Jesus. And John even uses a particular word to describe what Christ has done here. In my Bible, it's translated that he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. That word doesn't just mean he lived close to us. He was in our neighborhood. There's other words for that sort of thing. Literally, this word means he tabernacled with us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's not that Jesus is in the tabernacle, that Jesus is the tabernacle. That his body, his flesh, is a living, breathing tabernacle. That in the manger, we see the tabernacle of the glory of God among us. Now, last bit. I know this was a lot of doctrine, okay? let me take all of these things park them right under your Christmas tree. Why does the tabernacle of Jesus matter for us? We know that there are many reasons why the word became flesh. You know, in his flesh, Jesus is able to become a sacrifice for sin in our place so that God and sinners would be reconciled. There's a reason. And we know also that in, our, in, in his flesh, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, that while without sin, he did experience temptation. We also know that in his flesh, Jesus shows us what our true human calling looks like, what it looks like to rule the earth as God's image bearers in a way that we protect and serve All of these things are true about the reasons why Jesus has come, but John seems to highlight a much simpler reason here. A simpler reason why Jesus has come. The word became flesh so that we would see him. The word became flesh so that we would see him. Jesus came from the top, down, and tabernacled among us so that we would know God in his glory. To make sure that we would not miss it. That we would see this one who is true light that the darkness has not overcome. I know this has been a long, hard exhausting year for many of us. If not hard, it's at least been, well, different. It's different even to say hi to people in some ways. And we don't expect that the coming year will be a whole lot different, at least not at the beginning. We know Christmas also this year is no exception. It's, it's different. It seems that nothing is ever as easy as, as we want it to be. Maybe Christmas this year is a little less busy, perhaps, than it's been in former years. But in a lot of ways, that busyness may have been replaced with other difficulties. This Christmas is, is fraught with family tensions trying to figure out what to do and who should meet and how we should meet and how many people are going to be masked and who's going to, you know. This year is fraught with a growing sense of loneliness and isolation, fear. And also we can feel with that sin creeping into our hearts forms of impatience and anger maybe popping up. Whatever Christmas brings along with it this year, don't miss this. Stop. Look here at the tabernacle that we can see and wonder. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen. His glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, we we are helpless to do these sorts of things without you. We know our minds are weak. Our hearts are frail and often sinful. So Lord, by your power would you pour out your grace and truth upon us? Help us not to miss you, to see your full glory here this Christmas and to find in you hope and rest and joy. Thank you for being our God. We love and trust you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.